Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host, John Harris, for a listener-generated episode on Russell Moore's view of same-sex attraction, homosexual orientation, homosexuality more broadly. It wasn't something I was expecting to talk about, but I had a listener who wanted to know Russell Moore's view, and I'm already on a roll on this subject because I've been thinking about it. It's fresh on my mind. And I think the thing that surprised me and one of the things that contributed to me wanting to do this is that Russell Moore's views aren't that different than some of the views coming from people that we think of as more solid. And that, does it scare me a little bit? I suppose so. Because Russell Moore has become somewhat of a barometer in evangelicalism. If you are a conservative Orthodox evangelical, conservative theologically, conservative politically, because you're conservative theologically, you don't want to become Russell Moore. Like he's the guy who was at the top of the, the ladder as far as being at a conservative evangelical institution, at least one time it was considered that, uh, Southern Seminary, and being the head of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Southern Baptist Convention, obviously, having the reputation for years as being this super conservative denomination. And Russell Moore climbed to the top of this and then decided to take a left turn. And some would say he was always a leftist in, in some fashion, I suppose. But he certainly became more of a leftist, even if you think that. And he's been condemned, or at least people have distanced themselves uh, from him, uh, especially since he became the, uh, I forget what his position is. What is he, the chief editor or something at Christianity Today? It's escaping my mind right now. But he's, I think he's the editor-in-chief, isn't he? Christianity Today or the theology expert or something. Let me look that up real quick so I don't... I should know this, uh, and I do know it. I just forgot it. Let's see. Um, Russell Moore, it says, on the Christianity Today website, he is the editor-in-chief. Yes, I was right. Okay. So since that time, and he kind of slammed the door as he was walking out the Southern Baptist Convention, and did a lot of damage on his way out. And uh, we've covered some of this on, on the abuse, quote-unquote, issues, which is really more the slander issue, not the abuse issue at this point. We might talk about that later in the week. There's been some developments in the SBC along these lines. Uh, let's just say uh, Rachel Den Hollander is being somewhat exposed, and it's a conflict of interest she has going right now that I just wouldn't want to be in her shoes. But uh, so you have that issue with Russell Moore. We've talked about the immigration stuff with Russell Moore, and uh, we've talked about his false gospel, too. I talk about that in this book, Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict. I encourage you, get a copy of this, because a lot of the questions I get, I refer people to this book, because I've already written on so many of them, and, and it's right there. The sources are there. So I haven't talked about this particular issue, though, and I thought, well, we'll talk about it. And uh, so... Hopefully this helps some of you if you're in churches that still, for some reason, are open to platforming or accommodating Russell Moore. I don't know why. There's been so much exposure of Russell Moore, but some haven't gotten the memo, and that's understandable if you're a busy pastor, I suppose, if you're not paying attention to what's going on online and your only reference point is, well, years ago he was solid or something. So for those for that crowd, that's kind of why I'm making this. Uh, wanted to mention this, though, before we get too far. There is something that I would love for you all to um, participate on. Well, it's really for patrons uh, exclusively, and so I'm letting them know. But this is happening this Friday at 
uh, 8 p.m. this coming Friday, the 13th of January. We're going to do a chat on Ideas Have Consequences, a book by Richard Weaver. And I've talked about this for a while. I wanted to do it actually the end of last year, but things got away from me. And we're going to do more of this, but it's a little bit of an experiment for me because I don't know how it will go. I, I think what I've settled on is I'm going to do it through Zoom. So people who are patrons will have the link uh, to the live stream. And then I will uh, offer to uh, people to, I'll, I'll give them a Zoom link if they want to participate in the actual discussion. And that will give me some latitude to mute microphones if I need to, or uh, give people a turn depending on how many people want to participate, that kind of thing. I, I think what I'll do is an opening kind of section, um, and that might be fairly long. Uh, myself, I think my brother's going to be involved. My father might, we'll see. Uh, but we're going to just talk about this book from a Christian perspective, what we gleaned out of it, what we think of it, how it impacted us. And then for those of you, especially those of you who have read it, uh, we're going to open it up and we're going to just talk more about it, answer questions, uh, maybe glean some helpful information. I mean, I definitely glean from you all, uh, not just those who are patrons or those in the audience. I glean a lot. So I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to do a wide release of this after we record it. But at the very least, if you're a patron, you have the unique opportunity of participating in this. And uh, that means you can ask questions, you can access the live stream when it happens. And so uh, that is to your benefit. Another thing to your benefit as a patron is you will get the slideshow that everyone's going to be viewing today or listening if you're listening on uh, iTunes or something. Uh, I'm going through some quotes from Russell Moore from a slideshow. And so I make that available to the patrons as well. So wanted to just uh, let you know about that. And uh, we'll get started here, though. Let's go through some uh, some Russell Moore stuff. We're going to start here. Um, Russell Moore's view on, or I should say his posture. That's probably a better term on the same-sex marriage decision in 2015. How did he react to that? He was the, at the time, head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. And he did more than just this, but this, to me, stands out quite a bit. This is Russell Moore. Just let me read it, and I guess I'll give you a comment. So he said this in the Washington Post, the response is not shunning. And he's saying that about the response to homosexuality. The response is not shunning, putting them out on the street. So if you have a, a homosexual child, don't put them out on the street, right? He said, the answer is loving your child. Now, this is just representative of a number of other quotes where Russell Moore says very similar things, okay? So I didn't want to put them all here, but this is representative of those quotes. And you, you might ask, why are you quoting this, John? Well, don't we all agree? And that's the point I wanted to make. We do all agree, <laughs> right? Uh, the response to having a child who thinks that they are, we'll say this, they're confused about who they are, their identity, right? The response is not to put them out on the street. And I don't know of any group of evangelicals, at least in the mainstream, okay, that have any influence whatsoever that advocate or have even developed a position that advocates putting children out on the street if they happen to have, uh, in their own mind, some kind of a homosexual attraction. This is the kind of thing I want to point out because it's subtle. And I'm starting with something very subtle. We're going to get into things that aren't as subtle as we move through this, but I want to start with something very subtle to show you this is the kind of thing Russell Moore says. And if you're not paying attention 
you adopt it, you 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 uh, digest it, you you it, it goes down deep into you, and you could even maybe alter your beliefs slightly, and you're not realizing that you're doing it because the the error here is he's straw manning, all right. He's giving the impression to, in this case, the Washington Post, that this is some kind of an accepted or common reaction to children who uh, come out as homosexual. At least that's what they think they're doing, and that's what parents do in reaction. And that he's he's trying to say, in the midst of uh, the normalization of homosexuality, he's trying to tell the on a platform that's going to be read by a lot of worldly people that. Hey, you know, I want to let the church know here. I want to let Christians know this is not the thing to do, to shun or to put them out on the street. You got to love your child. Now, some of you, I don't know how many, probably very few of you, but there are probably some who are listening who said, you know, I do know of a situation like this. It's, I've never actually heard firsthand account. I, I mean, it's always been like third hand or, or it's very distantly, uh, it's hypothetical usually. I should put put it that way. I think every time I've heard about this, it's hypothetical that, well, a parent could do this. I'm sure this has happened, and some of you may even put in the comments that it has. But it's not a common thing. It's not something to bring up at a time when the war is not um, focused on these more peripheral things. The war at that time especially was on the fact that this is not just being normalized, it's being legalized. The government's putting their stamp of approval on this practice that is anti-biblical, ungodly, out of step with human nature, uh, damaging. Uh, the damage that comes with homosexual relationships and uh, the not just to individuals but to society should be the thing that Russell Moore talks about. If you read the article, though, he doesn't. He's almost, uh, he's almost sheepish about being a dissenter about these things. He'll, I found a quote where he says in 2015, I'm, I'm a conscientious dissenter on this. But him articulating why he dissents is very surface level. It's very uh, quick. He doesn't really want to focus on that. He really wants to jump to things like this, to lecturing the church on what the church needs to do. And that's where he spends the brunt of his time. It is the exact thing we did not need in 2015. And I've talked about this before. The, 2015 was the year for me when my eyes were super opened. Because there was two issues. There was the marriage issue and there was the monument issue. And they're not the same in every way, but there's a similarity here in that Republicans and political conservatives decided that they would pretty much ignore both issues, that they would let the left have those issues and then downstream from those issues when the left gets really crazy and starts trying to put females in uh, or males, I should say, in female sports, or when they try to start taking down a statue of uh, Abraham Lincoln, then we're going to try to maybe push back a little. And it was a cat catastrophic decision because the very assumptions that have been used to take down our identity as a people and our identity as, uh, uh, so, so I mean, as a people corporately, but at, and our identity individually as men and women created in God's image, both those things were under attack in that moment. And both of those things were given up. We submitted to a standard from the left that said, we will acquiesce our identity, our very identity, who we are. We will, uh, we will gut that. We will put a scalpel to it. We will attack it if we don't meet some egalitarian threshold the left has put in place. That's what happened in 2015. And at that time, we needed warriors. We needed people with courage to lead. We didn't have it. Russell Moore is one of the biggest names 
of, in my mind, of someone who was on the evangelical right, supposedly, who completely failed us because he wanted to take whatever prophetic ability he had and then use it to correct the church, to call the church to repent, to blame the church. Tim Keller does the same kind of thing, by the way. They're both very similar in this. And so they, they will, they'll, they'll connect, they'll uh, make the necessary statements that you must make in evangelicalism by saying, well, I disagree with homosexual marriage. They'll say those kinds of things. And then what happens is people cling to those and say, well, see, they said it. Okay, well, big whoop, right? <laughs> you know, that's, if you, if you, you have to say that if you're in evangelicalism, I'm saying they're not genuine. I'm going to assume that they are genuine on that. I don't know if that's true, but I will just assume it. Uh, but that a lot more needed to be said in those moments than just that, because we're downstream now and we can see the damage that's been done. And uh, it's not good. The normalization of perversion, androgyny, homosexuality, effeminacy has taken root in not just the world at large in our institutions, but in the church in particular. And uh, I'm seeing it in all kinds of little ways. Things that uh, I think in probably 10 or 20 years we'll be able to see more clearly, but the notion that the pastor is this more therapeutic, soft kind of uh, figure instead of a strong, masculine figure. Things like even that. Now, am, I, am I blaming gay marriage? For, no, I'm not. I'm saying that there's a, there's a whole move that's coming, a tsunami that's happening at the same time. Gay marriage was just one of the major... Uh, and, and I would say fundamental issues in that tsunami, but the tsunami itself is just an attack on the created order. It's an attack on uh, the, who God is really and what he established. They don't like it. And so I think Russell Moore does the wrong thing to put his fire towards, in that moment, towards Christians for, you know, warning them, you better not put, you know, th that person out on the street instead of, uh, instead of looking at what was actually happening, there's plenty of time to warn Christians they shouldn't do that. But was that the time is the question, right? Okay, so you might say, small point, John, I don't really care about that. Please get to the meat of this. And I, I would say to you that I understand what you're saying, but don't miss this. These subtle shifts are so key. They are the, the slight shifts that uh, turn the nose of whole entire societies and movements. All right, well, here's uh, some more meat for you, though. Um, and this might be a bigger deal to many of you. He really took a bucket of water and he, he threw it on whatever fire might have been there for taking political action in that moment. Because that was the moment, right? 2015, that was the moment for not just, well, the Republican Party is about family values. That would have been the time to be specific and say, we are going to make it our goal to overturn this. Now, you might say that's a losing strategy. Well, yeah, look at the polling now. But one of the reasons the polling is the way it is is because everyone capitulated who was a leader. They either ignored it or they didn't want to fight it. And they uh, sided with the, I mean, even Trump, right, sides with the uh, this idea too of uh, homosexual marriage. But that was such a fundamental issue. That was the moment. If, if you don't fight on that issue, what are you going to fight on? I mean, you know, we have principles, but we won't fight on that. Like, <laughs> that's pretty fundamental. I don't know. Like, what could be that much more important to you guys? So, same-sex marriage is headed for your community, Russell Moore says. This is no time for us uh, for fear or outrage or politicizing. It's a time for forgiven sinners like us to do what the people of Christ have always done. It's time for us to point beyond our family values and our culture wars to the cross of Christ. As we say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is from Russell Moore's book, Same-Sex Marriage and the Future. 
This is terrible on a few levels. He makes out like it's our culture wars. Really? It's our culture wars? That's Christians have the uh, possession of the culture wars. They are the ones who started them, or they're the ones who continue them, or they're the ones who are just all about that and focus on it. Um, how about, no, the world, and I would say ungodly, evil people who have perverted ideas have started and continued a culture siege on those who are, even if they're not Christians, they agree with the created order on this issue. How about that? How about uh, we are fighting a defensive action here and we need to fight uh, aggressively on this? But instead, Russell Moore puts the blame in the wrong area for the culture war. He also says that there's no time for fear or outrage or politicizing. So right now, you, you guys, I know you, you all want to get up in arms. You want to have elections. You want to try to get some good judges in there. You want to uh, maybe on a state level fight this like Kim Davis did. Uh, it's not the time for politicizing, guys. Really, that was the time. That was the time. That window has closed. And now it's it now might not be as much of the time because now we're downstream and we have these other big issues that are part of them uh, caused because of this. We're fighting drag queen story hour in libraries. We weren't fighting that in 2015 before the gay marriage issue, were we? But we are now, and we're fighting the normalization of pedophilia. We're fighting the normalization of bestiality. We're fighting pornography that's being mainstreamed in the schools. It's stuff 2015. And guess what helped make that stuff more prevalent? You got it, gay marriage in 2015. And it's exactly the thing Russell Moore says not to politicize over. This is pathetic, guys. This is... This isn't an interview in a secular rag of some kind. This is Russell Moore in his own book on this. It's time for us to point beyond our family values and our culture wars to the cross of Christ. Well, who's disagreeing with that? That's the other thing I have a problem with on this. I'm, I know I'm ranting at this point, but so you have an option, I guess, in Russell Moore's mind. You could either focus on the cross or you could politicize. How about both? Russell Moore has no problem mobilizing politically for racial justice. Should I go to him and say, now, Russell Moore, you know that racial justice, this isn't the time. I know George Floyd's death and, and all, but it's not the time to be marching with BLM or supporting any of these things. You just got to go focus on the gospel, Russell Moore. He would never accept it, but he will on something as fundamental as marriage. Some Christians, he says, will be tempted to anger, lashing out at the world around us with a narrative of decline. The temptation is wrong. God decide. So here, so I want you to, this is so key. This is so key. This is so key. Listen, listen, listen. That temptation is wrong. Hear him say it. He, there is a wrong temptation somewhere. Where's the wrong temptation, John? The wrong temptation is here, that you'll be tempted to be angry about what? About same-sex marriage. So Christian, you see same-sex marriage being normalized and legalized. You know this is evil. You know it'll cause harm. You know it'll cause pain. You know it'll cause uh, sin. It says in the scripture leads to death. You know this is horrible. You don't want it. And the, your Bible says it's wrong. And you are going to have a righteous indignation over it. But that temptation is wrong. So Russell Moore does believe some temptation is wrong. Does he think homosexual temptation is wrong? Hmm. Being upset about homosexuality, that temptation is wrong. Isn't that interesting? So he says this, God decided when we 
would be born and when we would be born again. We have the spirit of the gospel. To think that we deserve to live in different times is to tell God that we deserve a better mission field than the one he has given us. Let's joyfully march to Zion. So yeah, if you are upset about what happened, then you're telling God that you think that he created you for the wrong time. Excuse me. Would Russell Moore say this about the slave trade? If you lived in England when the slave trade was happening and you you were upset about it, you're William Wilberforce and you want to do something to stop it, would Russell Moore come in and say, well, listen, William Wilberforce, I think that you're just angry. And uh, that's a bad temptation. That's a wrong temptation. You shouldn't be angry. What you're telling God is that you wish you were born in an era when the slave transatlantic slave trade wasn't happening and it is happening. And so you just need to be grateful. And you come on, guys, you know, he wouldn't do it. And that's, it's like, I can't believe this. I just can't believe that people take Russell more seriously and think that he's some kind of a, uh, a brilliant mind on these things. And I've, I've only gone through one slide. I got to speed up. All right. Participation in same-sex wedding reception. Here's the big, this is, this is like, let's get as close to the line as possible without crossing it. Russell Moore says this, you know, there are situations where maybe a same-sex couple, they come back to the neighborhood after being married somewhere and someone has a housewarming reception for them. Well, in that situation, what are you, what, what you have to weigh is, is my presence there going to be confusing to the person that I am trying to lead to Christ? Yes. Yes, it is. It is. Russell Moore. (laughs) Is it going, he says, to signal somehow that I have changed my mind, I am not calling the person to repentance, or is it going to be instead a signal that I disagree with you, but I love you and I want to talk with you? Well, sometimes those situations, you have to make those in a light of a biblically informed conscience and on the basis of what's going to happen in the moment. So he's saying on the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission blog, paid for by your Southern Baptist dollars that you give to the cooperative program in the pews, guys. This is paid for by this. He is saying and propagating this message that, you know, it's just, it's acceptable. If you can figure out a way uh, to communicate that you just want to have a cup of coffee, right? that kind of thing. If you, you just, I love these people. I want to talk to them. Then you can go to, the, um, excuse me, the wedding reception. This is kind of insane, though, because the wedding reception is what? A celebration of the wedding. You can celebrate the wedding. You, you just he, he says earlier in the article, you shouldn't attend the wedding. This is nuts. Like this is trying to create a space where there is none. There, it's trying to separate things that can't be separated. He says this, too. In, sign, um, in a sign of the practical struggles Baptists face, some of the conference, and he's talking, this is a conference, I think, from 2015 or 2014, Uh, that was hosted at the Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. He says, this conference focused on advice. What if you get invited to a same-sex wedding ceremony? Russell Moore, president of the... uh, Oh, no, sorry. I was wrong on this. Oh, was I right on this? No, I think I was. I'm right on this. This was at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Okay. Russell Moore, president of the SBC's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the article states in Wall Street Journal, was asked, in that case, I would not um, attend the wedding. Okay, so he won't attend the wedding. I would attend the reception, he said. In that way, he said a Baptist could say, I love you and I'm here with you. I disagree with you, but I love you. Okay, so here we go. Not only does Russell Moore open the door for the possibility of going to a gay wedding reception, but he himself says he would do it. He would do it. That's the example he's setting with your cooperative, at the time, if you were Southern Baptist, with your cooperative program giving. Here is Russell Moore embracing homosexual orientation. He says this, in an article in the Huffington Post, the utopian idea, if you come to Christ and if you go through our program, so he's talking about reparative therapy, you're going to be immediately set free from attraction or anything you're struggling with. I don't think that's a Christian idea, more told journalists. 
Faithfulness to Christ means obedience to Christ. It does not necessarily mean that someone's attractions are going to change. Okay, so this is the same thing Greg Johnson says. It's it's prosperity gospel to say that you can change those attractions. Really, guys? Isn't that exactly what Jesus does? How, like, not just with this issue, but how many issues does Jesus do that with? You say, I've been struggling for years with this. Okay, resist to the point of blood. I mean, scripture says in Hebrews, it asks that question. The author says, have you resisted the point of blood? Uh, Are you, how... And I'm not trying to say that it's not difficult, but use every weapon you have. And yes, I have sympathy for people that go through this. Yes, I've known people who have this and struggle with this. And yes, it's a battle. But it doesn't mean that you just give up and say, well, that's who I am, right? Uh, You don't say, well, you know, any idea that I could be freed from this is somehow prosperity gospel or, you know, what he says, in this case, utopian. Please. I mean, would Russell Moore, again, to, to on the issues that he is, you know, very gung ho about, would he would he say? Would you say, well, we shouldn't fight racism because you know a world without racism would never happen. There's always going to be a racist somewhere, so uh, you know it's utopian to try to fight this and give the impression that we can enter this world in which uh, one day we're going to have some kind of uh, equality on on when it comes to. Uh, race in the eyes of the law or something. I don't know. But, uh, you know, Russell Moore would never go down this path with that issue, but he will with this. Faithfulness to Christ means obedience to Christ. It does not necessarily mean that someone's attractions are going to change. Well, obedience to Christ is going to mean you desire your attractions to line up with his. Paul in Romans 7, he did the very thing he hated in his mind. He's, He's hating what he's doing and he has a desire that he doesn't want. Guess what he does with that? He mortifies it. He fights it. And that's what we have to do as Christians. This life isn't meant to be easy, guys. It's not easy for anyone. It's not easy for non-Christians. It's harder for them. It's easier for Christians when you have Christ to fight these things. But it's still going to be a struggle until we get to heaven. And we have to rely on God every step of the way. And Russell Moore here is giving the impression that you should just lay down your your sword, I guess, on these desires. Because after all, desires doesn't mean that they're going to change. So that's buying into orientation language right there. That's saying that's the way I am, okay? I can't stop it, change it. It's actually not even sinful. He says this more, um, more in the article for the Huffington Post, more said evangelicals have an inadequate view of what same-sex attraction looks like. The Bible doesn't promise us freedom from temptation, more said. The Bible promises us the power of the Spirit to walk through temptation. Lord, have mercy on us. The Bible calls us, Colossians 3, 5, we talked about it yesterday, to mortify both the pathos and epithemia. That means the patterns of sin that you might have, the uh, desires, actually, that you, you may have, those pathological desires, those deep, uh, uh, those deep passions that you have that you might even feel like you don't choose uh, sometimes. I mean, they just, they come upon you and it just feels like you can't control yourself. I mean, it's strong. It means mortify that. And just mortify epithemia, mortify desire itself. Just the in that moment when you look and you see something that you want and you know uh, that uh, you right then that there's there's an evil welling up from within you. There's something in you that is attracted to something that you should not have that God has not ordained. Mortify it. Wow, where in in that do you find that? Well, the Bible promises us the power of the Spirit to walk through temptation, but it doesn't promise us freedom from that temptation. Look, guys, I just got done saying that we're going, it's going to be hard. 
uh, and we all have our different struggles and things in this life and different situations that we live in. There's no doubt about that. But we live this life with the goal and the anticipation of being rid of the sin that we have. That doesn't mean perfection on this side of heaven, but it does mean that um, as we go through life, we are being sanctified. That's the biblical doctrine. It's being more and more like Jesus Christ by putting to death the deeds of the flesh and walking in the spirit. So it says, walk in the spirit. You will not, um, you will not commit the desires of the flesh. And this is, this is the pattern of the Christian life. Okay. We got done yesterday. I would encourage people to watch it talking about how same sex attraction is different than opposite sex attraction in that Romans one says it's both unnatural and it's the result of a previous idolatry. In fact, it's one of the, uh, it's, it's what Paul chooses to exemplify how dangerous and damaging creature worship truly t- is and, and how far it will take you. So idolatrous creature worship. Uh, th- this isn't, you can't say that about uh, opposite sex desire, which is to be, uh, and I'm talking about sexual erotic desire here, which is to be manifested and exercised in the bounds of marriage in a holy way. It's not sinful. It's not sinful. By the way, I should say this passing comment, but some people were taking issue with um, my position on this. And I, I'm I'm thinking, th- I'm still thinking through th- this particular thing a little bit, but I, I think I'm pretty, I'm getting pretty settled on it. Like I'm, I, you know, scripture is very clear. Lust is uh, for things that God has not given or ordained. You know, that kind of thing is wrong. It's coveting, right? There's, that's a sin. And so that, that's what adultery, uh, what Jesus says, um, committing adultery in the heart is. And that's what um, any sin uh, for something that really God hasn't ordained. But homosexuality is part of this. If you want another man in a sexual or erotic fashion, and you are a man or a woman, if you're a woman, that kind of thing is wrong according to scripture, right? And as Paul talks about the epithemia and passions, uh, so uh, the uh, pathos of homosexuality as being something that is the result of the judgment God puts upon people who do creature worship and the descent into depravity that we just talked about. And so you just go read Romans 1, you'll see what I'm talking about. I'm not making any of this up. I'm just trying to represent what the scripture teaches. But some people were, uh, like I said, asking, well, how, how do you be mar- How do you get married? And as a fallen creature, I think it's really hard to think of a scenario where you're not going to lust after the person that you're, you're um, wanting to marry. But here, here's how I think about it, right? Um, I think that God has given us, in his, and this isn't in the perfect world, pre-fall, God has uh, designed creation in such a way that there's going to be procreation. There's going to be um, children, right? And there's going to, the, the species will continue. And, and this is uh, just part of God's good goodness in creation. So um, getting from that point A to point B is the question. How do you go from noticing someone, let's say I'm a, I'm a man and I notice a woman, to then being in the bounds of that covenant relationship, exercising an erotic kind of um, love, uh, an eros for, for that person. And I think of it this way. You, you can have an attraction for someone. And I'm not saying, this is not in the same category as same-sex attraction. When they, because they're talking about, they're talking about an orientation that involves some kind of a, um, well, it, it's, it's not in keeping with the natural order. All right, at, at its best day, it's not in keeping with the natural order. But it is a substitute for 
homosexual orientation, which was the word that was previously used. So there's been a switch. So when they talk about same-sex attraction, that's a continuation of this term homosexual orientation. It's orientation language, right? All right. The justification they have is that um, they can have these desires without exercising them. And then they parallel it with heterosexuality. And so we can have these heterosexual desires too without exercising them. The thing is though, you can have somewhat of an attraction for someone in God's good order before you enter the covenant of marriage without having an erotic desire for that person. I believe this. Obviously you have to have, there has to be some will at the very least. You have to have some kind of a, a reason for or a will to enter that covenant, right? And that's, if you're gonna be doing so wisely, there's gonna be positive attributes you're looking at. And I think in our context, I'll just, because people would say in the ancient world, it was arranged and so forth and so on. But yeah, even in the ancient world, Jacob found Rachel uh, pleasing and, and she was pretty, she's beautiful, right? He, he saw this about her. And I, I know that's more descriptive than prescriptive, but that's just, that that's, that's how the world works. So I think it's beneficial to point that out. Men are going to notice women, and they're going to notice their beauty. In fact, um, uh, what a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, really. If you read about the interactions between men and women, like I was reading the stuff on Robert E. Lee, and I was reading the stuff on Calhoun, I remember, and um, both were known to be very complimentary, uh, really almost flirtatious with women. You, you know that today it would it would be not something that you could really do or say. But for that, it didn't have to be something that was sexual erotic. That's the thing. It could be something, it was an appreciation that we have little understanding for now that once existed between men and women in a society where boundaries existed that were uh, to protect women from sexual predators and so forth. And so it was actually good manners. Even if you're an older man complimenting a younger woman on her looks, there's, there's a certain um, uh, decency to it and chivalry to it that we don't understand today. We, sh we should bring it back, but it's hard to because everything's over-sexualized and people think that you're being a creepy man or something, but it's, um, it, it's, it doesn't have to be that way. And so what I'm saying is, you look at the Word of God, you see that men have these desires. Women, women I'm sure they notice men, right? And there, you have the Song of Solomon, which, um, now there's disagreement over where the wedding takes place. Um, and I'm not an expert in the Song of Solomon. I've, I've uh, unfortunately been the re on the receiving end of multiple interpretations of it. And all, everything from it's justifying sexual stuff before marriage to uh, it's not even about uh, King Solomon. It's about the, a shepherd boy and King Solomon's the villain to just everything. But I, I tend to think that, um, as I was reading it yesterday, that I think the, the marriage has probably already taken place. It doesn't tell you in the book really where it happens. Because I think some people think it's like end of chapter three. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's a justification for um, sexual uh, desire or even attraction. Same thing, really. That's what I mean by it when I say sexual attraction, sexual desire. I'm talking about the same kind of thing outside of marriage. Uh, erotic desire, same thing. Um <clears throat> You do have, uh, though, uh, Agar uh, in, uh, was it uh, Proverbs 30, I think, where he says that there are things he doesn't understand. One of them is the way of a man with a maiden, and that could be translated virgin or young woman. And he says, you know, it's a mystery. I, I can't understand it. 
And that's kind of where I've landed somewhat on this. I'm okay with a little bit of mystery there in that God has wired men and women to be attracted before they're married. They, they, are, they, they go through a process of uh, finding someone or, and someone might help them with that in arranged marriage scenarios in the ancient world. And then uh, they form a covenant. Well, as soon as that covenant happens, then you, you yeah, be as erotic as you want to be, right? It, it's a holy thing. Before the covenant happens, it's okay to look forward to the fact that I'm going to be in a covenant with this person. But but there there has to be a way. There, there, there has to be a, a shield from uh, a barrier from a uh, going into an erotic sexual desire because then you are in the realm of, of um, what the Bible refers to as lust, uh, which just means desire, but it's, uh, it's something that outside of the marriage bond is not approved of by God. And so that's my way of trying to work this out. And, I can, and I'm okay by saying, eh, I, don't, I don't understand exactly all the, the chemistry that, uh, that goes into that kind of thing. But uh, I mean, even in the natural world where there's pheromones and things like that, right? And um, I think that that has a purpose even in marriage. I think that, that's that's not necessarily uh, just for um, attracting someone. But if it is, you know, I'm open to like that's part of it. Uh, the Bible's clear: you don't uh, you don't sexually lust uh, in in a scenario, even when it's hard, even when you you really want to, right? And and you feel a strong passion, a strong pressure. Well, like God designed you to eventually have that and to fulfill that. And so let's. Let, let's think differently about marriage. Let's think about getting people, if you're raising children in the church, giving them the skills they need to be a good mother, a good father, doing it as early as as you should, as you can, I guess. Um, you know, giving people skills so they can support one another financially, all the rest of it. And uh, and, and let's get married younger. Okay, let's let's uh, raise people who are wise, wiser by the time they have these urges. And, and, uh, and maybe, as another side note, I'll just say, maybe don't feed them some bad uh, hormones in meat or something. I don't know. I don't know if this is true, but some people say that it's the hormones in meat that's causing earlier puberty, which causes you know earlier sexual desires. And of course, the exposure to pornography and things like that might do the same thing. And so, hey, shield your family from that stuff and get some good food. Like, you know, talk to John Moody about it. I don't know. He knows about good food. All right. Well, that was a longer rabbit trail. It wasn't a side comment, was it? But I wanted to address that. So we're back to Russell Moore now. Back to Russell Moore. Uh, we just talked about uh, reparative therapy and how Russell Moore is against that. And um, and the issue with all of this is that uh, we should have an expectation or at least a um, we, we, we should have a, uh, a motive of success, of conquering sin when we're fighting it. Instead of out of the gate saying, well, I guess I can't, you know, I just can't do it because I, that's how I'm wired or something. Um, and, and, you know, in this case, you know, people who are trying to seek that help, Russell Moore's like, they shouldn't even find that help because it's, it's giving them too much false hope. It's like, really? Really? Uh, where is that getting us, Dr. Moore? You know, this was like 2014 when he said this. We're, we're to 2023 now. And, uh, you know, how's, how many states have made reparative therapy illegal? Uh, isn't Canada has now threatened even, um, their, their laws threatened pastors. Uh, the new law that just went through, um, the uh, supposed Respect for Marriage Act, also is likely going to have a number of religious liberty type lawsuits that come out of it. Like, how's that working out uh, going down that road? All right. Moore said evangelicals had an inadequate view of what same-sex attraction looks like. Uh, oh, I already read this. The Bible doesn't promise us freedom, right? Okay, so we're 
or there's an embrace of homosexual orientation here. Now, that embrace of homosexual orientation sometimes leads to this. And I've heard this view before. I didn't know Russell Moore had it, but he says this in, in Same-Sex Marriage in the Future, a book he wrote. He says, those with same-sex attractions who follow Christ will be walking away from what their families and friends want for them. Wedding cake and married life and the American dream following Jesus will mean taking up a cross and following a hard, narrow way. Now, I want to say this. Why does it mean giving up those things? The only assumption that you, there's a hidden assumption here. The only reason I can think of you would say something like this. Can you, can you guess what it is? If you assume that someone with same-sex attractions will never escape them and have opposite-sex attractions, you would say something like this. If you think that that is a prerequisite for getting married is having these opposite-sex attractions, and remember, again, the same-sex same attraction, uh, it, I suppose it could be used broadly, but this is a substitute for homosexual orientation. That's why the word gained ascendancy. If you buy into the idea that you have a homosexual orientation, you want to have sexual erotic, you have these desires for people of the same sex. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, it's, it's the whole book is about same-sex marriage, okay? It's what we're talking about. And you can't get away from that. You'll never escape it. You're locked in. Then it's not fair to get married because guess what? That person is just, you're not going to be attracted to them. And so the assumption is you have to be sexually attracted. Now, this is something I was working out with someone the other day. And, and I think they're right on this. And this is so countercultural. And I'm still, I'm working this out in my mind a little bit, but I, I, I don't know if I'm quite where this person is. But a person advocated, they said to me as a pastor, that, you know, um, sexual attraction and, 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 and uh, he, he was even saying, I think, physical attraction, like any, like even noticing beauty, okay? Like that's not a prerequisite for getting married because in the ancient world, there were so many arranged marriages and we can even see today arranged marriages tend to fare better in general than marriages that aren't arranged. And they, they, they start out cold and hot, ours start out hot and cold, Right. And, and I thought, yeah, that's an interesting thing to say. Because we're just, I assume from the beginning, like you got to be in love, man. You got to like, uh, you, you just got to, your heart must go you know, pounding in your chest. And I've experienced that, right? Before, yes, and I have experienced this before marriage, right? I've experienced like, oh man, like I just, that girl, right? And I don't, I'm not saying that's unnatural. And I'm not saying that noticing a girl, recognizing her beauty. I mean, I, I remember with my wife, I'll just say, this is very personal, I guess, but I'll just say it. Um, for me, when it, it was a it was a motivator to honor her and to not think of her in a sexual way and to, um, uh, to uh, uh, th there was this like respect I had because of the infatuation I had that like, oh, I could never think of her in that way because she's so great, right? <laughs> So, and other guys have told me the same thing. That's that's one of the reasons earlier I said I don't think you have to have an erotic attraction before marriage. I don't think that's that's that, that's necessary. But anyway, um, Russell Moore here is assuming that you you do have to have some kind of an attraction. And um, from the context and everything, it would seem what he's saying is there a, a sexual attraction. And that's just not the case. I don't think you have to necessarily. In our culture, in the West, 
it uh, it's expected that you're going to have some kind of um, physical attraction, uh, whether that's recognizing beauty and personality and all that, or uh, some, some some kind of complementarity there. You know, even enjoying the same interests or uh, a sexual. Um, usually, that's coupled with it, a, a sexual drive, right? And neither of those things are prereqs, technically, biblically speaking, all right? So in our context, how do you navigate this practically, John? Well, <laughs> I'm not advocating that you go to arranged marriages. Uh, if you, hey, if you want to, if that's something that, you know, you, you figured out a, a way to do this or you live in a culture that does it, you're a missionary in India or something, I don't know. That you, I'm not saying it's wrong either. Um, I, I think I, because of the way I was raised and everything, I bristle against that <laughs> a bit. Maybe that's wrong of me. I don't know, but... I, this, this is how I think of it. If you are in a situation where you, you struggle with this pathology of same-sex attraction, do everything that I said in the video yesterday, you know, repent, get help, etc. right? And in so doing that, look forward to pursuing relationship with someone of the opposite sex. If, and in our context, I think what that would look like is Go to groups and form connections. Get to know people. Get to know people of the opposite sex. And you may find that there's going to be things you have in common, if, especially if you're involved in ministry things, you may find someone's very complimentary to you in a ministry setting. And there may be, uh, I don't know, common interests you have too, right? These things are, if you don't take these initial steps, how do you expect to get to the step of, consummating a marriage when you're in a covenant, right? It, 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 in our context, it has to start out somewhere. And if you just bar yourself off from that completely and say, well, I can't go out on a date with someone, right? And, and dating is a whole nother topic. But for the purposes of this video, uh, if, if let's say that's the tool you have available to you and you, you say, I'm not even going to go out on a date with someone because I, I have this pathology. Like, what are you doing? Like, why not just go, if, if you're mildly even curious about someone, even if you're not, maybe it's just someone you know is a good person and maybe you'll gain a friendship out of it. Go on a date. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like just, just get out there and, you know, pursue marriage and get godly people in your life to counsel you in your specific situation. But Russell Moore would have you think you're just going to have to live a life of celibacy. Nah, I'm sorry. And one of the reasons I say this is a Bible verse. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says, In the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared. So guess what, guys? If you advocate abstaining from marriage or or abstaining from food because you're holier or something you know a gay, gay celibacy that's the way it, you're not guys you're you're dabbling in doctrine of demons here and that's what i would say to uh russell moore all right last slide um and this is the big one in my mind this is the one that you know i've given you these these shorter quotes but this is russell moore and andrew walker in a book called the gospel and same-sex marriage this is pages 32 to 34 and it's a longer quote. We're going to go through it. it. Says this: brokenness and the sin um, of same-sex desires and same-sex orientation are part of our broken and disordered sexuality. 
owing to God's subjection of the created order to futility because of man's sin. Genesis 3, we read about the catastrophic moment when the first man and woman rebelled against God. The effects on them and on the world are described in chapters 3 and 4 and then illustrated in the sin-soaked and death-ridden history of the Old Testament. Indeed, the history of the world. The apostle sums it all up in Romans 8 when he says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in order that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know from verse 23 that part of the creation was subjected to death and futility was our own bodies. And he stresses, yes, the bodies of the redeemed. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. Now, I want to just say something real quick. This is the same verse that John Piper brought up in a previous montage I played where he's trying to make the case that your same-sex desires are not sin, but the, they, they are the result of sin. So there's this like uh, separation he tries to make between like, well, you're the way you are because of the curse of sin. The, and, and that's Romans 8, but it doesn't mean that you yourself are culpable. That's the issue, culpability. You're not culpable for this. You're not engaging in sin because you experience these desires, all right? This is the same argument you're going to see here. Same verse they use too. Um, and the, the verse isn't, I mean, Romans 1 is the obvious place to go if you're looking for what to do about same-sex desires, but they like to go to Romans 8. Why is that? Because it's not about the same thing. I'm arguing that same-sex desire and same-sex orientation are, and, and by the way, I should say this I, before I keep reading, it's, it, why can't it be both? Why can't it be the curse of sin and you're also culpable? Anyway, I'm arguing that same-sex desire and same-sex orientation are in the, that category of groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, which means they are in the broad cat, category with all kinds of disordered bodies and minds and emotions. If we tried to make a list of the kind of emotional, mental, and physical brokenness of the human Family, the list would be unending, and all of us are broken and disordered in different ways. All of us are bent to desire things in different degrees that we should not want. We are all disordered in our emotions, our minds, our bodies. This is a call for careful distinctions, lest you hurt people or yourself unnecessarily. All our disorders, Russell Moore and Andrew Walker say, all our brokenness is rooted in sin. Okay, that's good, right? Original sin and, and our sinful nature. Okay, that's good too, because they're not rooting it in choice, which some do. It would be right to say that same-sex desires are sinful in the sense that they are disordered by sin and exist contrary to God's revealed will. Okay, so they're sinful, but in the sense that they are disordered. But to be caused by sin and rooted in sin does not make a sinful desire equal to sinning. So here's the, this is the distinction they're making. You can have a desire rooted in sin somehow, but you are not sinning with, by having this desire. Sinning is what, or experiencing, I should say, this desire. Sinning is what happens, they say, when rebellion against God expresses itself through our disorders. Intercourse, not desire, therefore, uh, same-sex intercourse, not same-sex desire, is the focus of Paul's condemnation when he threatens exclusion from the kingdom of God. Okay, so they're, they're, now they're, they're fine-tuning this distinction by saying that it's um, intercourse, so physical manifestation, not the desire for it, um, that Paul is condemning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 10. 
And that says, do you uh, not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, nor be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The men who, uh, it says, the words, the men who practice homosexuality is a translation of two Greek words, which refer to the passive and active partners and homosexual intercourse. The focus is not on the same sex desire, but on the same sex practice. And notice that homosexual practice is not singled out, but included with other ways of sinning. And it lists those. The point is not that one act of homosexual or heterosexual experimentation condemns you, but that returning to this lifestyle permanently and without repentance will condemn you. Men who practice, who themselves uh, over uh, give themselves over to this life and do not repent will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will perish. Now, let me say this. If you sin in one point, you're guilty of all. Sorry, one sin condemns you. That's biblical theology, all right? Stumbling at one point condemns you. So, uh, you know, I, I think maybe what they're trying to say is if you claim to be a Christian and you're, um, I mean, because I think they're right about as far as First um, Corinthians 6, I think it's talking about people who are probably characterized by these things. Uh, these are patterns of life for them. I, I mean, I, I could buy that. Maybe they're wrong on that. I could just, I, I, we'll just go with it. We'll assume it for now, just, just for the sake of argument, because that's not totally relevant to the, the main point I want to make here, which is that they're making a separation between the desire and the practice, which um, in the video yesterday I've, I've shown you doesn't exist. And Romans chapter one is one of the places you go to show, sorry, they're, they're right there together. Uh, you can also go to um, Colossians 3, 5 and, and see that we're supposed to mortify the pathos and the epithemia. So this is a pre-action category that exists before you haven't even done it yet, right? This is what James 1 is even talking about. So we have these desires and the difference is between one sin and two sins. So is it worse to commit one sin or two sins? Well, you're condemned if you commit one, but it's worse to commit two, all right? So if you commit two sins by you lust and then you fulfill that lust by, you know, uh, making uh, a move towards it and committing uh, a sin, then y yes, you're more guilty. Uh, but if you just commit one sin, which is the lust, the coveting, but you don't actually go and do it, then that's one sin. Right? This isn't hard, right? Uh, that's the the real distinction here. But the distinction they want to make is that th that that initial part, that one sin is not sin, but the two sins, the physical manifestation of it is. And they're going to, this is a hermeneutical thing, they're going to passages that aren't specifically, um, I mean, 1 Corinthians uh, 6 is talking about homosexuality, but it's it's men who practice homosexuality. And it's it's not if you're talking about same-sex desires, you, you should be going to Romans 1 if you want to talk about it. It talks about it right there. Um, but they want to go to 1 Corinthians 6, which is talking about, yes, an, uh, the manifestation of that in sin. If uh, they want to talk about uh, this subject, they sh why are they starting with Romans 8 to build their case that this is uh, not sinful in and of itself as far as an orientation or a, a, they don't use that term, but a, as far as a desire? Because they want to de deny culpability somehow, I think. That's that's what I'm gathering from this. I don't know how else to to put a, um, to put interpret this. And so the problem that many, unfortunately, evangelicals have had over the last decade, Russell Moore has too, on this particular subject. And Andrew Walker, I suppose. Uh, I don't know if Andrew Walker's retracted this, but um, that's his position as well. And, uh, and that's part of the reason I made the video I did yesterday on whether or not same-sex uh, attraction is a sin because this is so common. But to review all the slides here, Russell Moore uh, neutralized dissent 
when he should not have in 2015. Uh, He believes it's okay to participate in a same-sex wedding reception, uh, which is ridiculous. He believes that um, we should embrace the concept of homosexual orientation and to the point of of, uh, assuming that people who experience that will not get married. And um, he doesn't believe that same-sex orientation is a sin. So you can say all day long, well, yeah, Russell Moore doesn't agree with gay marriage. Of course, he doesn't agree with gay marriage. And he kind of has to say that as an evangelical, that, you know, that's not God's best. At the very least, you have to say that or that it's uh, contrary to God's will. But look at all these soft peddling things that, uh, that, that he uh, engages in. So hopefully that's helpful for those who are curious about Russell Moore's position on this. Don't forget... Uh, if you're a patron, please don't forget, I'll put the link in the info section for this, uh, this Friday night, if you're free, if you're available, and if you're interested, some of you might not be interested and that's fine, but if you are free and available, why not come on out for the ideas have consequences, uh, chat, maybe we'll chat about other things. I don't know, but we're going to chat about Richard Weaver's book, ideas have consequences. If you haven't read the book, it might, you know, and you don't read books, Maybe it'll even be more beneficial. You'll get a nice summary and you'll understand some of these concepts that I've gleaned from. And uh, and I think it's helped me. I want to give you books that have helped me, I think, in my own analysis on this particular podcast. And so that's one of the books. All right. Well, God bless. Uh, more coming by now.